and then it starts to rise up out of that glass inside hmm. that cloche. Hmm. That, the way that I do it, um, you couldn't do it in 60 seconds. There's no fast route to it. You yeah. have to travel there. And yeah. then it's the big, and then at the end, like you, this has been happening the whole time. Then, and then. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the TF cast. I'm Willis. Hey, Grum. <laughs> the date is December 13th in the solarium. And I'm your host, Jacob Basis. Today with us, uh, we have artist, comedian, magician, and adding entrepreneur to the list, I suppose, Michael Callahan. Uh, Michael, uh, tell us about this new venue that's opening up and what you plan to be doing out there in St. Peter. Well, thanks for having me on with you guys again. Always a delight. Thanks for letting me talk about the new, the new room. Hmm. I've been looking for a room of my own probably since, oh, 2005, 2006. No, 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 no. That's crazy talk. Um, much later than that. Let's call it 10 years ago. Once, So I, I started producing live comedy shows in St. Peter because I was doing comedy and I just wanted to have a place closer. I wanted to have a room I could do. I wanted to have a place I could do my shows without having to be picked by whoever books a room. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're down here and you're not able to be up in the scene all the time, fighting your way into any comedy scene can be tough even when you live in the city. And so it became one of those one of those situations where if the doors aren't opening, just build a door and then it can be your door. Mm-hmm. And once I got that thing up and running and it caught momentum, it used, I think the first two years I would hover right around 20 to 28 attendees for every show for two seasons. Everybody else made a little bit of money with, but me, I'd go home with like 10 bucks in my pocket at the end of a couple of really long days. Um, mm-hmm. if I was lucky and then it rebooted in, a in a in the Oddfellows Hall in downtown St. Peter and that was a room that could that could sit 60 and my friend Ben Leonard and I watched it jump to mid 40s to low 50s all of a sudden and now we're making a little bit of money and that was exciting then it jumped again where we were consistently hitting 60 to 80 then we had to go to a new room cuz that room couldn't hold more than that and we and we remember I still remember us talking can you imagine getting that night when you get a hundred and of course a hundred because the math is easy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what you sold the tickets for and yeah. you're like, man, move that decimal twice. What? That's amazing. <laughs> and we're just like, can you imagine getting to a hundred? And then we went from that where we would routinely, the nine shows, it was just a once a month room. Um, there were nights we put 137 people oh, into yeah. the treaty site. So what was happening was, um, it's, it is, I work well with other people, but there's just so much emotional and logistical friction when you're starting to produce shows that are feeling like they can do something bigger than they're doing, but you know that not having a home for it is ultimately going to keep your food cart from becoming Chipotle. Not that I'm going to be Chipotle, but I'm just trying to use that as an example. You know, you're making a little bit of money doing what you love, making food, um, but you're like, man, I'd like to... I'd like to make this a little bit more permanent, a little bit more control. And I've nearly pulled the trigger on that twice. I nearly pulled the trigger on this six months ago, but the circumstances weren't quite right. I didn't, um, I didn't have the capital ready to go because I'll, I like to spend the money I make. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to save the money. So I kind of had a pile. I'd had a hot streak regarding selling paintings and I'd had some shows and I, I had some, some capital ready to go. And then the perfect opportunity for the room opened up. It is a very small room. I just talked about 130, putting 130 in a room. I just set the room for the first time last night and leaving only like a five by seven performing area. I can't get more than 60 in this thing. And it Mm. is going to be, that's no tables. Yeah. Mm. That's like, take a seat. You're holding your, you're holding your drink in your hand. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, intimate. Yeah. Intimate. Exactly. But it's also going to be hot, crowds when it gets going hard walls tight space lots of people just a little bit inside there if you if you give your audience the choice they will sit as far away from each other as we are yeah you can have a good show that way but when it gets when you're when you're sitting like you might as well be just sitting down in the mosh pit that's what you (laughs) want you want people a little bit too close for their comfort and every bit of emotional social energy just flows from one person right into the other Mm. so i've got 60 seats I pulled the trigger on a lease. I started the LLC, and now um, 
the good news is I have complete control. The scary news is I have real overhead. Mm. So where it used to be, essentially everything was in the black. Um, you know, there, there <laughs> there's there's a little bit of work to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and the exciting news was was the last piece to fall into place was I had to get general liability insurance. I thought that'd be easy, which is why I didn't worry about it up front. That turned out to be really difficult with um, the the time of the year, the end of the year when all businesses are trying to reset their insurance mm. or get insurance. And of course, I do want alcohol in the room. I'm not serving it. I don't have a liquor license. It's a hired caterer who their liquor license travels. But that caveat made it not very desirable. So I was really just waiting for anybody to throw me a quote that we could bind as a policy. And I finally got that. Um, this weekend, this Friday and Saturday was 10 days away. And I thought, let's put together two shows, magic show on Friday, headliner on Saturday with a headliner I trust and the local area loves and just see if I can get any kind of revenue flowing any kind just wanted to i was i was planning on having no revenue in december just total loss mm-hmm. um put those two shows on the book happy to say uh close up show friday night completely sold out mm. and i am two tickets away from selling out saturday with maggie ferris and i am in the black month 1 couldn't hey, believe it. yeah I'm like oh whew. so that's kind of i did i say i'm in st peter yeah, yeah it, it was it was mentioned. Yeah, I'm I'm at 303 South Minnesota Avenue. It's in the downtown um business district and I'm just most people know River Rock Coffee. Mm-hmm. I am right next to River Rock Coffee. And in fact, one of the things that put the decision into the quit being a weenie and do this pile was they have a liquor license and a catering license for liquor and they're is a communicating old, old communicating door between those two buildings. Mm. And so they have cut that into a uh, Mr. Ed, the horse style half door. And then they're serving alcohol through that port. So the alcohol sales don't even take up square footage, which is a dream. And then now they're making money on times when they normally be closed. So good partnership there. That's wonderful to hear. Well, it sounds like, uh, although this, some of this is new, it's not your first venture into the, uh, event hosting space and stuff like that. So it's cool to hear you're coming at it from some experience, especially in the area too. It's the only thing that really let me do it. Uh, because I know, I, I I know what my expenses are. I knew what they were going to be roughly. And I know that second story comedy once a month for a decade I could be guaranteed a certain number of ticket sales. Mm-hmm. And when I did the math, it's like, would you bring back, would you basically bring back second story comedy to have your own venue? And then whatever else you do with that venue is how you then make money. It's yeah. like, I would make that trade. Like, let's finally make that trade. I'll do these old, I'll do the once a month comedy show. Mm-hmm. That'll put me on solid footing. And then family friendly matinees on Sunday. Hey, Johnny. Mm-hmm. Who wants to see a magic trick? Hey, Cindy Lou, what's that behind your <laughs> yeah. ear? So just whatever, Comp- hopefully company Christmas parties, hopefully Halloween stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. What are these close magic shows like? I, I assume that there's a lot of, like I, I've heard a lot of praise for them, but I've yet to actually see one. So I, mm. I think a lot of people might be interested to know what they're like. A close up magic show with me is sitting with me at a, table that ha- it looks a lot like a blackjack table i i built it it has inlaid rope lighting a blue crushed blue velveteen surface with a thin layer of padding under it for the cards and the coins for me to pick them up easily so i've got this big semicircle table that i sit in the center of eight seats are right at the table and then behind that i put between 10 and 11 seats up in bar height so that you're you can look down and see mm. and I just let people sit where they want because there are distinctly people who absolutely want to be at the table and want to be involved. And then there's other people who want to see it, but they don't necessarily want to be intimately involved, touch, you know, like do this, hold this, you and me, like, Mm. um, and so that, that's kind of how the seating works. And it's a style of magic that allows the performer to let our heads and our focus go down and to the table. And so the, Instead of instead of watching a performer up like this, you're looking down and watching the magic happen on the table, and then the magic comes up and it's in your hand. And so it's mm. it's a performing style that lets you do the close up work that 
usually you find in a restaurant setting where you're having having dinner and maybe if they've got a magician, the magician will come over and do like five to ten minutes for you, but they're just mm. kind of in, interjecting themselves into your situation. Or at a another place close-up workers work is we call it we call it strolling where you're at a big event and whether they're having social time or they're having dinner, you walk around and you just are constantly interjecting yourself into somebody's closed social situation. It's amazing that that style is still a viable style. I've done it. Um, I don't like it because of that exact dynamic where I'm just constantly interrupting whatever you have going on. And I know that at the most, I really only want to do like five minutes because beyond that, I'm just, it's too much. Mm. And so it's a way to create a more long, long format style with, with that. It lets me build, it lets me build effects that can take some time to get into as opposed to just having to be so flashy, just like, oh, hey, I'm Michael, I'm a magician here, hold this, what? Oh, it's in your pocket, yay, see ya. You know, I can be like, hey, um, like in fact, almost everything, almost everything in the show, like the, the strongest moments are moments that when it happens, when the biggest thing happens, it's taken me maybe 10 to 13 minutes to get to that moment. And I'll, mm-hmm. I'll give you kind of a, an example. Like I like to have somebody, some people take, some people shuffle the cards. We get out cards and we have um, you guys like draw on those cards. And then I do stuff with those cards. And, and, and then eventually all the little things that we've been doing with the cards, then those cards start to vanish and then reappear. And one of them on the table the entire time I have a glass cloche that's over a wine glass that there's been a deck of cards sitting inside on the table, in the middle of the table. And the last card that you drew on vanishes. And then it starts to rise up out of that glass inside that cloche. That, the way that I do it, um, you couldn't do it in 60 seconds. There's no fast route to it. You yeah. have to travel there. And yeah. then it's the big, and then at the end, like you, this has been happening the whole time. And then, and then, um, my favorite, <laughs> I had a woman who, she was the one holding onto the glass cloche. No, she wasn't. She was next to the person. So this woman's holding onto the glass cloche and the woman who's been enjoying the beginning of the show, her quote was when that started to rise up, which is like maybe the seven to 10 minute mark of the show mm. starts to rise up. The woman to her right goes, now that was a good one, <laughs> which implies like that the rest of it was yeah. kind of yeah, like yeah, C yeah. minus. I'm yeah. like the rest of it. That yeah. was sick. Yeah. Right. I'm like, well, okay. First of all, most me, people yeah. enjoy the beginning, Yeah, I, but I'm glad that this fucking miracle yeah. <laughs> finally pierced your joy <laughs> bubble. For me, well, the other uh, ones were tricks. Yeah. Yeah. All the other ones were tricks. This yeah, is a, that's a fucking miracle. For me, it's like a, at least per like the perception of it is you're like increasing the skill level by instead of me being David Copperfield 600 feet away from you, you're like right here and I'm easier to catch now. And I, I, there is a real level of a lot of times those close up magics are a higher skill gap too, just because like you're, I don't know if they use this term in magic, but like APMs actions per minute, like Mm, the physical amount of things you have to do and have to happen quickly right in front of someone. Whereas a lot of like some of those big states, tricks is she's in the table or there's a mirror you know it's more like physical sleight of hand or like tricks like that and you know i say it's perceived as harder because like it depends on the trick well and people perceive it as harder because they're closer to you yeah yeah yeah. um on the last episode you talked a little bit about your past experience as a seance magician doing some mentalism and stuff and this sounds a lot more like that where you, you're a little closer. You're able to like really bring people through the story with you. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's interesting you brought up actions per minute and the seance style and the story mm-hmm. and the narrative. One of the things that I'm going through now that I'm getting older, um, my hands just day to day feel thicker. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't just work as well. They, they Throughout the day they change as opposed to the 19-year-old the hands that I started practicing with. Ideally, mm-hmm. you start really practicing when you're really young, but I didn't. I started when I was about 19 practicing. And there's just things that I don't do as fluidly or as quickly as I used to do. And mm. I'm having to make some decisions about cutting, cutting older material that I used to do in my 20s because I just can't it just doesn't feel good. Like I could still get through the routine, mm. but as an audience member, it just doesn't, 
it doesn't belong in the repertoire. You know, it just doesn't make that grade where you draw the line between here's the stuff I'm practicing, which is like mm. all this stuff, and then like here's the stuff I should show you if you've paid me money to see yeah, this. Yeah, you yeah, know, and, yeah. and I think that even perceiving that line is one of the things that separates long-term amateurs from people who consistently yeah. get paid for their work is just the simple thing of it's not even that you're better, you're just unwilling to show them the stuff that's not good. Um, and certainly sometimes my radar is still off on that too. But right now it's, it's been fun in, in building this routine over the last three, four years where I am bringing in elements of the seance into the magic show. Um, mm. I am doing work with cards where the thing that makes the trick work now, oftentimes I still, there are sleight of hand elements on my side, actions per minute, secret ones that I need to get done. But a lot of the things that I do to make the trick work, I am transitioning away from hard knuckle busting physical moves and I'm mm -hmm. relying more heavily on the psychological tricks and warfare and again to be very clear not that it's not moves it's just the diff the difficulty of those moves and if you put them in the same psychological blind spots the effect on the audience side is just as strong if not stronger yeah it's Ooh. just <laughs> not as hard to do yeah I, that's what i was about to say in uh pretty much any of these entertainments something i can relate it to is like uh uh, juggling knives, uh, juggling knives and juggling clubs, uh, are the same trick. Another good example is tightrope walking, tightrope walking one foot from the ground and tightrope walking 700 feet in the air is about the same trick minus like maybe some wind conditions or something like that. Yeah. But it's like this idea of like, just cause a, a trick is really cool on the back end doesn't mean like the, the person on the front still just sees like the coin disappearing and reappearing, whether it went down my sleeve and out the other end with some cool contraption I built, or if I hit it behind my fingers, it's the same trick on this end. Mm -hmm. I also mm. think it forces you into understanding what it is you're offering to the audience. Yeah. So, you know, magic there, when you're young and you have the best fingers you can easily sell yourself essentially as an X Games act. It's like you're there in the half pipe, and the reason people are watching is because that is you're the best. Yeah, yeah. So that's great, but what happens when you still want to make a living at it and you're not the best? Yeah. No. Well, now you're now you're actually talking about narrative art, and now you're talking about doing the hardest trick on a tightrope versus the documentary man on a wire. Yeah, yeah. That guy walked across the wire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Only time in my life I've ever cared about tightrope walking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've seen people do crazy things on a slack line. So much, I bought a slack line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Like, <laughs> don't care. Yeah. You would never pay me. You would never pay me to watch me feebly try to make it across my slack line. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I do it at such a low level. Yep. However, if there is a compelling narrative as to how I ended up on that slack line yeah. and we create um, dramatic stakes. Yep. Suddenly now you might, yep. you might, I, I'm not saying I can write a story that would make you mm -hmm. care about walking across a slack line, 10 steps, but a talented storyteller could. Yep. And so that's mm -hmm. what it's, it's making me shift and focus on is, is reminding myself that if I saw, there's this magician named Renee, Renee Levant, he's dead now, but he had one hand and he was great. Uh, amazing magician. And the reason was, is because the magic he did was excellent magic, but he was limited by the fact he only had one hand. And so he was no less of a magician and you would never judge him for what he couldn't do yeah. because he only had one hand. And in the same way, I'm reframing that as in, in a way, you know, aging out a little bit is kind of like, it's like my having one hand. And mm. if I can com create compelling magic that I couldn't yeah. do when I'm 20, I'm no less of a magician. And in, in many ways I might be more yeah. um, than, than that. So. Well, and in other like, uh, um, entertainment like categories, there's like, um, the guys, uh, I, I bring this up on the podcast a lot, a lot actually, but like the guys who can play the fastest riff as fast as possible, cooler than anyone else don't last as long as someone who can play like three notes in the same amount of time and like sell them harder and sell like a narrative through or the same with like an artist uh we talk about this actually a lot too like realism is uh is in it has like uh objective qualities that can turn it into almost like a sport almost like uh, in shredding's the same way it's like not even does this sound good it's like what's your bpm and did it sound clean and hmm. yeah or realism it's like well yeah you can paint a perfect parrot 
but like what does that say about you other than you put a hundred thousand hours into drawing you're a wet machine yeah 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 is what you really are yep. um you are not pouring any humanity yeah yeah exactly into, there's and the moment there's no expression the moment it's duplication without with permission is when when precision is your style you have no style yeah yeah exactly well, I mean, isn't there like something to be said about like what people want to like magic isn't so saturated that you couldn't do it, right? I mean, because yeah. certainly you'd probably make more money if you shackled yourself and threw yourself off of a bridge and then emerged from the freezing <laughs> waters. Or, you know what I mean, like, because we'll be like, oh, but at this age, the trick would be the fact that my old, oh, I won't even do the joke. You can cut that. <laughs> it was a shrinkage joke. Oh. <laughs> Not only did he escape but the one thing changed size it was a transformation yeah <laughs> transformation teleportation escape yeah all yeah. by one body part yeah you're right so but what you what you're bringing up reinforces i think what my thesis is jacob which is when you're doing an escape act what you have is stakes yeah. and the stakes is perceived danger and in many cases real danger like Houdini jumping into the water, the ice water. I mean, fundamentally, you're jumping in in a bathing suit into a frozen river in London. That's dangerous. Yeah, you can't Ooh. put like foam ice cubes in it or something. David Blaine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you should just tell the audience about your overhead like right away. Like, <laughs> <laughs> just, like <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's really great. Uh, I used to do this for $10 a month. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. That's the perceived stakes. <laughs> it's like, I will lose my business if I don't land this. Yeah. <laughs> so. No, that's really funny. Frowning children photos. <laughs> Did the trick work? Yeah. <laughs> Did he make his monthly payment? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Terrifying. Um, you said you had... Uh, yeah, when I had talked to you about this outside of this, you said one of the reasons you were excited about it is that there's not a lot of places to perform uh, specifically magic. Um, I, I, I was just wondering if you could talk about that a little more because that was interesting to me because I, I literally can't name one magic venue uh, and I'm someone who's like pretty interested. I'm not like a practicing music magician, but I, I, I really love magic. The only two places that the only one place that I know in all of Minnesota where you can just go to see magic guaranteed is the Turf Club, which is a high end restaurant, I think, in like the Minnetonka area. I, I don't even know. I've been to the, the Turf Club. Turf Club. It's uh, is it in Minnetonka? I can't remember what city, but it's owned by it's owned by it's a it's a Live Nation venue. I'm pretty sure. Okay, like part of the First Ave family of venues. Mm -hmm. And the magician you would see there is Suzanne, who is a excellent professional magician she's one of our state's true magic stars she oh, cool. was a cool. student of the legendary i mean and arguably she was his favorite student um i'm gonna botch his name uh schneider al schneider who was a very famous sleight of hand magician from minnesota he invented uh, the four coins under the cards oh, matrix. Yeah, cool. The original version of matrix. Cool. That's Al Schneider. I didn't know that was a Minnesota trick. That's yeah, cool. that is a Minnesota trick. And mm. and she was his. He he taught, but he taught seriously. Like you weren't like, oh, I'm paying. You know, I'm paying for Allison's magic lessons, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You came to him as somebody who already had worked on it, and you wanted to get good. Yeah. Mm. And she was his star pupil, and she was one of the first season fool us foolers. Um, she's a legend. I um, admire her work greatly, but outside of that, my, you know, my friends, the magic underground up in the cities, they still do pop-up stuff here and there at Sisyphus Brewing and Modest Brewing, but they don't have a home. Okay. There used to be a magic shop in the Mall of America. There is still a magic shop, Eagle Magic, which is the country's oldest long-running magic shop uh, run by Larry Kahlo, who's another magic legend. But again, you can go to see a magic lecture there. Um, yeah. You can see Larry oh. demonstrate stuff over the counter, but you're not going to see a magic show. Huh. And I haven't been in there. I'm surprised. I've only been to air traffic. Okay. I don't even know where air traffic is. Oh, that's a mall of America too. Is it a magic shop? It's well, it's a, it's a little bit of magic, store. but it's like magic juggling, like pretty much any play 
like anything people call playing. So like oh. uh, juggling, poi, slack lines. And then they also have like puzzles and games. But 93 points, 937.8 in your Dewey Decimal, uh, games and hobbies. Yes. Uh, so, <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's insane to me. Yeah. Um, and one of the reasons that, so I, when I made this decision to take this risk, my stakes, my overhead, mm. um, I knew that, I knew that comedy and people still remember, I know when I met you guys, I wasn't doing it, but people still remember me as like the comedy guy. Oh uh, yeah. And so I knew that there was going to be that baseline of revenue with that comedy show uh, and then I also just kept thinking to myself, once that's established, if there was a place where you knew you could go see magic and it was a brick and mortar place that didn't move around, like, oh, the bar tonight has hired a magician. Yeah. Like, there's a magic place. Yeah. I think at some point that there's going to be a tipping point there. And it should just start to get a life of its own. Yeah, I totally agree. And I'm going to be working really hard right out of the very beginning of bringing in magicians who are in my network to make sure that not just, not just am I there, but people who are better than I am are sticking their heads through it. So I'll go ahead and promote it right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have been on the phone all day today, uh, back and forthing with um, Magic has one Wunderkind right now. Uh, in his mid twenties, his name is Nick Defot, and he is from St. Paul, and he is kind, funny, like the funny you can't teach, like mm. the real funny. Yeah, incredibly skilled magician. Mm. Started taking serious lessons from the best magic teacher in the area, arguably the country. Uh, Tyler Erickson was his mentor and teacher. So this kid, he has it all, um, mm. and. The coolest thing about him, even though, oh, and so what he, he, uh, to give you an example of where he's at, um, Matt King, who is the country's probably most famous comedy magician on a national scale, he's the afternoon show at Harrah's in Vegas. Mm. When Mac t- takes time off, Nick does the show. Cool. It's Nick at Harrah's. And mm. so this kid, to his credit, he, he's just, Again, he's so down to earth. He has kept track of all of us local guys, his original magic club. He's still friends with everybody. There's a Facebook group where we all jump in and and uh he's gonna be coming next month, January, the eighteenth and nineteenth, the Friday and mm. Saturday. I think that's right. Let's double check it. But Nick freaking Defot is going to do the weekend. And uh, wait, this coming week next No, week? January. So oh, so cool. this yeah, this is this was like the soft in, opening, but the grand opening weekend, I was like, okay, soft opening, let's get a couple shows in December, get the place up and rolling, and then who is gonna open it? And mm. Nick's like, I'll do it. Like wow. I'd, I'd be happy to do it. So heck yeah. Um, I'll be there. Yeah. And he <laughs> know awesome. and the and the thing is about Nick, Nick knows Derek Hughes. Nick knows I mean, Nick knows everybody. Yeah. And so if if it can be another place where you you, you treat them right. You treat your customers right. You create a place where kids can come. Seriously, kids can come see a gen, a family friend, friendly magic show on a Sunday. I mean, I just you can't tell me that it that it won't dominate for a while because it's the only place you can get it. Yeah. yeah. How how big is the the actual like performers market in like the United States, for example? Like, how many people are producing this kind of magic at like? even this scale it's so small um the only other so the magic lounge in chicago got started i think six or seven years ago and it has been a smash success it is a permanent magic venue in fact nick oftentimes will do as much as like a month there he'll be their artist in residence in chicago Hmm. those people have done incredibly well (sighs) are if depending on who you talk to People will say the Magic Castle in Los Angeles has actually passed its prime, even though it's still there and running. Um, there was the Tower Magic Bar in Aspen, run by Doc Eason and Eric Mead, and those guys aren't there anymore. Uh, it was like a couple hundred people, maybe? Maybe. Hmm. You know? Wow. Yeah, It's not many. Yeah, do you think that has to do with, like, uh, like, uh, I, I guess I, I want to reform that question. What so like? All right, what can like a magician aspire to do? Really, it sounds like it's like 
Vegas or big city residency, uh, getting on Fool Us or America's Got Talent seems like the big like entertainment on TV avenues. Um, but yeah, what what are like some aspirations? As so as a, a working magician, yeah. And I think one of the reasons you don't see a lot of venues is because venues have a lot of risk. Yeah. There is the overhead. Um, mm-hmm. You are charged with, there's a saying in show business, which is it's easier to find a new audience than a new show. Yeah. And that's really true. I mean, to, mm. to generate a new high quality performance piece, it takes, it just takes time. I mean, it can take years. It's like, it's like creating a new album. It can take you know, decades. It can take decades. Easy. And then even then the new stuff might not be as good as the old stuff. And yeah. Once mm. you've seen somebody do their trick, you know what's coming and you can enjoy it knowing what's coming. That certainly is, but it takes the kind of person who also likes to buy DVDs. You know, it's like, that was a great movie. I want to watch that again. You know, a lot of people are like, see it done. Don't care. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You can work. I think most magicians work as what we call corporate magicians where we do, we are the entertainers after a company dinner. Uh, You get paid a lot of magicians make their living doing strolling magic, which is being in a, company or a country club or a, some sort of a social setting and it is your job the same way i mean i'm gonna I, this is gonna be a very demeaning statement but in the same way that somebody might have to choose between having a magician at the party or a small shetland pony standing off to the side in the stable <laughs> like that's kind of what you are yeah. you're like well you know we got the thing up what should we get what well, we should get a pony we should yeah. get a balloon guy we it should get a magician bizarre. a dj we should get yeah. a dj there should be a catering i mean yeah. you're in that list yeah. yeah right and that's i mean that's how most magicians make their living and it's one of those sneaky professions where if you can build if you can build um a solid you can build a really solid 20 minute repertoire of material that can be performed close up, not even to a room, but just a few people at a time. Hmm. You can make an astonishingly good living. Yeah. It is one of the art forms where there is a, most art forms, it's that tiny little group at the top that take all of the actual money. Yeah. And then there's this huge triangle base underneath and everybody's just, it's a, you know, it's a side gig. Mm -hmm. And magic is one of those, one of the arts where, and maybe that's why they don't let us be in the arts. They won't give us grants. Now that I think about it, and I say this all out loud. Magic's not considered an art legally um, in the Library of Converts, which is why we are not allowed to get grant funding, all those things. You can't do it if you're doing magic. Uh, Copperfield has fought that fight in the courts for years, and he's got endless money, and he can't win that fight. So, he should just apply as a carpenter. He should, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's one of those sneaky professions where... Um, I had a good, I, I, I talked myself into my first restaurant gig where I would work six to nine going table to table at a nice restaurant on Friday and Saturday nights, uh, in Longmont, Colorado. And within the first month, so the first four weekends, so the first eight nights times three. So within the first 24 working hours, I had established what my best five minutes were. It was three tricks. It was my opening, my quick opening find a card. Like I, you would take a card. I'd let you say, okay, I'm not forcing you. And if you don't like it, get a better card. Okay. It'd go in, cut it, boom, pop. It would flip up in the air and I'd catch it. Hey. And then I, you take another one and say, now you might've thought the last one, the way I did that is I might've stuck my pinky where your card was. That's called a break. People do that. Not me. That's not how I do this. So watch, I'll put it in like that. Da, da, da. Now I'm going to have you find it. I'm not even going to find it. You're going to find it. Okay. What was your card? Three of hearts. Okay. Spell that. T-H-R-E-O-F-H-E-R-T-S. Turn over the next card. What? Three or four? I know, it's crazy. Okay, now, shovel there. Take the deck. Take the deck. Here's what I want you to do. If you think a card's red, put it here. If you think a card's black, put it here. Just guess. The entire, I swear to God, you're going to get it right. What? No way. Red, black, 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 red. Turn them over. Holy crap. How did I do that? I thought, Thanks. Okay, I'll go. Do you want to know how? I'll write it down for you. I'll go in the other room and write it down. Okay, go do that. And then I go grab my business card and I write it down and I bring it in, which also gave them time to get their tip out if they yeah. wanted. So I leave them some space. Come back. Oh, five bucks. Oh, thank you so much. And here's the name of that book. You can learn it. Five minutes. Hmm. I wrote that five minutes. I mean, I, that's how I became a professional magician. Hmm. Was five it, minutes. Was it a Swedish shuffle? 
A Swedish shuffle? No. Um, is that the one that the Muppet Chef does? No, I'm <laughs> sorry. Like, the, 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 the bottom force where you like pull from the oh, top. Oh, okay. So that's, you know what that is? That's new language for an old trick. I got corrected. I call, I referred to a trick the other day to a magician friend. I, I called, I was like the name of the trick and he's like, we don't call it that anymore. <laughs> 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 so I won't even say what I know that trick no. as. Um, and because, you know, I don't want to, I'm, I respect political correctness. I want to, I don't want to hurt people's feelings. Yes. Um, that um, might be why. Yeah. I just, that's what not, I learned it not as used, in a book. Nope. <laughs> You're not called that. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. Uh, no, the way my, so I did not force a card. I had two selected ones. And if you want to oh. talk shop, um, my go-to, so it changed over time. And the way that I found the card at the end was pretty hardcore. I'm going to be it. honest, yeah. But uh, my really early go-to was what was known as a short card, where if you take a deck and you take one of the cards and you you cut like just a sixteenth of an inch yep. off the end of it, if you mm. riffle the end of the cards, it'll pop right mm. at that card. Mm. Dunk, and then you can either keep going if that's what you want. So what I would do is I would just put that card on the bottom, which yep. I could find it instantly because it would pop. And so you take any card you want, I'd offer you the bottom half of the depth, i just put them on top. And then in that first shuffle... It'll catch mm. there, bring that card to the top, another false shuffle, false cut, mm-hmm. flip it off the top of the thumb, oddly Walsh's side spinner out of Tarbell, volume three. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's actually the plot in the season finale of the first season of Yu-Gi-Oh! Is that exact trick. Are you serious? <laughs> it really is, yeah. <laughs> like the whole plot is he cut the rim of the card so he could shuffle to <laughs> amazing i wow. love it yeah and then uh yeah that other trick is super cool because it's like a ancient trick it's like not ancient but it's like a it's known as the it's it's still considered the best card trick i yeah, remember it's the, so cool yeah when we rolled over from 1999 to 2000 if you weren't freaking out about um all the computers shutting down uh mm-hmm. you might have remembered a list they did a compilation of the 10 best magic tricks of the last hundred years cool. and the only card trick on that list was paul curry's out of this world he was an amateur magician which yeah, makes yeah. it even cooler and uh yeah you know and that thing was so good that it's been it's been it's been improved 60 times i still perform the way he wrote it up yeah and it's it you cannot you'll never convince me that the original version is not the best version i feel like while doing it like while you're actively proving to yourself it works, even then you're like, whoa, that worked. Yeah. And you're like, I know how it works and I'm doing it. Yeah. And I'm still like, whoa. <laughs> I love that trick. I love that trick because it's the one that taught me the the extent to which you can control the behavior of your audience members mm. through our social norms. So there's a moment in that trick where if they were to reach and touch and look, the whole thing is exposed. And the way you sell that trick is to get through the moment where everything is done and you have to convince the audience through your social behavior that everything's done, there's no fear, it's safe. And now we're just going to reveal this thing in the in the coolest, most dramatic way possible. Yeah. Hmm. And because your instinct is to like, like let's say my mic stand is you and you yeah. just didn't work side by side. Your instinct when you start performing the trick is to be like, don't you dare touch any of this. Yeah, Because yeah, if yeah. you touch the thing, you're going to see and then I don't make my overhead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then and then it was awesome to learn in those first few months that the, that the way you actually do that is you actually lean away. Yeah, yeah. And you, you let them there like, you did it. Yeah, you did yeah. it. Yeah. And now they have no, there's, you're not guarding anything. So they're not chasing anything. Yeah. And then you just yeah. roll casually. And when you, when you communicate that to them in their mind, it, 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 I mean, I mean you can, you can learn how it's done by going and looking it up. Mm. I've never seen anybody figure it out. Yeah. He, earlier you used the term warfare when you're talking about like the way that a magician approaches a performance problem or something. Is that is that kind of accurate with how you, you'd think about approaching a performance as you, you're kind of at, in some version of warfare with the audience, you know, trying to make sure that your reality is the one that is, is being perceived? It's not only is it an not only is it a fair comparison, there's been books written about it. Hmm. 
there's a gentleman, and I don't know his name, but he took the art of war and adapted it to street performance. Street <laughs> That's magic. awesome. Everything from putting the armies backs against the wall, mm-hmm. um, like just every concept mm-hmm. in the art of war. How does that apply to you as a street performer? And he could have done it as a performer as well. Um, your terms, your grounds. I mean, there's so many, and which, which when you want to talk about wanting to create consistent performances, understanding the terrain you're on mm-hmm. is absolutely vital. Um, and there are terrains that are better and they will, they, even that the terrain will dictate the, 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 the way you fight. Mm-hmm. So like if you're doing strolling close up or street magic, you're using guerrilla tactics. Yep. You are, uh, using small unit tactics, mm-hmm. jump in, jump out. Um, and then if you're going to conduct the big battle, you want to pick that's, that's called a theater. You're on stage. The lights are on you. There's a mm. proscenium arch. You control the sound. Like you control all of the major elements that give you the chance to win the battle of mm. did you like this or did you not? You know, I don't yeah. I'm not a big war guy, but it is a you know, it it is an interesting thought experiment. Yeah, you don't want to you you don't want to leave the room dead, but you want you want <laughs> it's a combative uh, activity maybe or like the way that uh, it can be approached is it's helpful to think about it as something that's yeah. a little in conflict. Well, and, and I think, and I think the, the ideas of never, God, there's so many different ways to do it. I mean, and there's different ways to win, win fights, right? Like um, there are the performers that just come at you full frontal assault and bowl you over like the mm. juggernaut. Right. Yep. Like if you're playing, like I'm a big Diablo two, Diablo three guy. And if you're going to play, um, the barbarian, yeah, everything's melee, everything's coming at you. Like you are just going to come at somebody full force, like a ton of bricks. I would say that's mm. Pendulette style. Yeah. Um, mm. and then within that very same show, if you watch teller, Teller's going to be the one where everything you give him, you've given him willingly. Uh, he has drawn you in. He's more of a, you think, you mm. think you're coming at him and as he backs in and where he wants you suddenly realize you're exactly where he wanted you to stand, yeah. which is over the trap. And, you know, he wins that way. So mm. I think that, you know, in the same, again, terrain matters, circumstances matter, context matters, understanding who you are. I'm not the kind of, I've, I spent a lot of years on stage as a comic, which is one of the good things about spending a lot of time on comic trying to figure out it was i a a high energy guy bowl you over guy or a quiet or deadpan guy and i really wanted Mm. to be quiet deadpan guy i admire that style so much and then plus also like even day to day i kind of sit in quiet deadpan guy but when i get into a social setting um i naturally start to ramp up energy wise i i will oftentimes dominate a conversation to a point of like a fault like like you're so talking <laughs> over everybody we're, right now we're familiar. But, uh, but i have so many important things to say <laughs> yeah. you know and so uh naturally for me as a comic at least just getting ramped up was was my best tactic mm. um although all my my favorite performances are the ones where i'm a little bit i'm a little bit more under control deliver the stuff let it breathe I think the easiest comparison, if you're sticking with the the whole combat thing, is it really actually doesn't matter what you do because you know most folks would look at the if you were to just take images of war and show them to people, they would dislike that. Um, people don't want to watch that. Uh, but it it all depends on how it's received. So like you could give a good trick or a bad trick, but if the audience is favorable to you, like that's what you're really controlling. You know, mm. absolutely likability. That's right. And and fundamentally. When we you know, we were talking about uh, movements per minute and being a badass, yeah. um, you will go much farther in the field as a professional if you understand what about. Now, this doesn't necessarily not mean being like sweet and kind, but whatever it is you're putting out, if you can get them to like that, is there a guy like that out there? Is there is there a magician out there who's just like a total heel, like a guy who's like, I want you to hate me and think amazing, that I'm wrong. Amazing, amazing Jonathan, Jonathan was like that. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. look him up. Um, that's as close as anybody I can think of who yeah. is super aggressive. And then the other one mm-hmm. uh, that you have to be lucky to see him because he doesn't do anything essentially other than street magic. There is 
the greatest street magician of the last of our generation is a guy named Gazzo. Um, he was one of these guys who was a student of a legendary sleight of hand magician. I saw him in Boulder one summer when we were still living there. And the way he, first of all, nobody built bigger crowds than he did. And nobody in Boulder knew that they were looking at an, a legitimate international street performing yeah. god. Yeah, like a master master. A Ooh. master's master. It's like, hey, did you know that Picasso's drawing on napkins yeah. down at number four? <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Like that kind of level of amazing. <laughs> and this guy would, he would start his show He's, so he's got this bald, round head, stocky, dr- as always, like they dress kind of in a costume. Like you can tell it, like it, it, it walks the line between street clothes, but also a little bit performery, but also not too clean, a little bit dirty around the edges intentionally. And, uh, he would just hurl insults everybody who would walk by with no kindness in his voice love it no sparkle in his eye beautiful and it was the most hateful <laughs> stuff you'd ever heard oh gosh and <laughs> and the you know and the people would like people would just they would hear it and they would look at the person he just said it about and they'd look at him is this safe is this legal yeah what a great way to gain control and immediately put your mark completely off kilter yeah like they have no idea there are even a mark it probably even mid magic trick they're like what's huh <laughs> well, what, what he, was the punchline you know what was he getting to like was he just he was stopping people to it, so he would he did have his ta- he had his performance table out so he you know visually you walked by him and you you knew especially in the setting boulder colorado you but even if you weren't in boulder you'd know this is he's a a performer because he had his table all set up he had his bag and he was dressed like a performer but not over over the top and so you just weren't sure if if like maybe this was a straight performer who's you're watching a man who's been scraping by for the last 24 months he's got 25 cents in his pocket uh he's he's his he's got his he's three days from his last bender and he needs a drink and he's just had it with the world and he's going to just pour every ounce of vitriol into anybody who passes by. It's like a redemption arc he's going for. Kind of, but also like Grum said, it's also about control. And also the Mm. thing was most of it, if not all of it, except if it hit you too close to home, was hilarious. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) I mean, funny, funny, funny. And then all of these lines were, I mean, I know that he's just watching people go by, but people fall into buckets and this guy's been doing it for 25 years. It doesn't matter what you walk in. He knows exactly the one for you. Yeah. yeah. It's a proven winner and you're going to get it. (laughs) And and then he finished and he would do a bunch of really hard card stuff. And then he would finish with a cups and balls routine. He had a bowler hat on and and his, uh, he would have the, he had he worked the biggest set of cups and balls I've ever seen. So not only did his cups produce, um, boy, they were big. I don't know if he produced full size oranges, but close, like big <laughs> cups. And then he worked out of a, um, a a pouch, like in red a pouch on his stomach is where his bag was. So he's in and out of thing. And then at the very end, he puts his hat on the table and he's going, he's going. And then under the hat uh, is a melon, no. uh, which is. <laughs> That's, that gets the money. <laughs> gets the money. Nobody saw the cantaloupe coming. Completely uh, surrounded, middle of the street. Uh, yeah, that's that's awesome. Gazo and Amazing Jonathan. Those are the two just like dagger I, throwers. And and Jonathan's dead. And yeah, Gazo. I don't know if he can still do that anymore. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, I would say some eras of pen are kind of like that, but it was more being abrasive to like the magic scene and to tell her yeah yeah and to tell her yep or like yeah did he ever did he staple things to tell her or am i thinking of the amazing jonathan i think that's jonathan uh okay the most overt act of violence acted out on stage pen on to tell her would be out of their early stuff which is still one of my favorite bits where teller is trying to do the blindfolded card find with a knife yep. and pen has just been riding him he follows him into the audience as teller's trying to have a card select and he's just like they just saw the pass it's yeah. the worst pass i've ever seen anybody i'm so sorry he's i'm sorry he's not on his game tonight just like riding him riding him riding him and and teller's finally blindfolded and he's like trying to find the card with the knife and pen's like moves the cards one more time yeah and I, then, okay. oh yeah this is actually teller on pen violence yep, i flipped yep, it and yep. then and then teller stabs and then pen screams and it comes up yep, and the and knife the is gone and the blood mm. uh 
And then Penn says, that's what Teller and I do. We take something, a classic in magic, and we class it up a little bit. Yeah, we class. <laughs> I, oh, you know what I think I was getting confused by was uh, Penn's nail gun trick. Ah, uh, yeah, on his, that's, and that's on himself. Yep, yep. I think that was confusing me. Uh, so we could probably go on this tangent forever. forever. <laughs> We're on an hour here. I, I think we've failed to bring up the art side of your gallery and you as an artist. Okay, real quick. Tickets are always available for the shows at mjcallahan.com. Cool. Just like the art. Uh, There's a little, you click shop, you click tickets, there it is. But uh, Awesome. So during the day, the other, right, so part of all this is I was fortunate enough to have my first solo solo show at the Art Center of St. Peter as a painter. Uh, Abstract acrylics and then traditional water landscapes, watercolor, and then occasionally a watercolor abstract. And people continue to encourage the work um, by purchasing the paintings, which was something that continues to astound me. It is something that continues to astound me. And so one of the exciting things about getting the space is knowing that the shows would do the bulk of the heavy lifting as far as the mechanics of a business, but then it creates an opportunity for that space to flex into my art gallery during the day. And I'm right next to River Rock, which is the most, per capita, the most walked into business in St. Peter by far. And when that one opened up, because I was looking at a building across the street, down the block, like literally diagonally all the way down. I see. And nobody makes it past Nobody makes it past the contour shop. Nobody Ooh. makes it past Cooks and Company when they're shopping down there. Ooh. So, although now you should go to Generations Boutique. My friend Leela has a great, she's reworked the whole thing. But yeah, so to be right next to them and during the art stroll of St. Peter, I was up in my studio up above the art center and a young woman from St. Paul was driving back from Sioux Falls because that's where her parents are still living. And she saw the signs and she decided to get coffee. And while she's like, oh, I'll wander upstairs. And she wandered in my studio and took the only really big expensive piece. Mm. Saw her take a picture of it, started texting. She's like, I'll be back on Wednesday to get this if that works. Mm. And so that kind of stuff continues to happen with the pieces. And so I felt like if I had a gallery where somebody could serendipitously walk in and also people who like to keep track of the stuff online wanted to just come in and see what what's new and i'll be painting in there so during the day like pretty good chance i'll actually just be painting in the space working on pieces um yeah i i I don't know if i i don't think the gallery could ever do it on its own but as a um as a barnacle on the whale that is the stand-up comedy show i think that it might find some sort of a life I think it's really cool that you found a way to kind of like take everything that you're passionate about and put it in one space and also like kind of create a space that, I mean, we don't have a comedy club. We have the the Circle Inn, which it, which it does great. And Dan's been selling out. I think he sold out four out of six shows this year. Love it. So, uh, but yeah, I just think it's really awesome that you're doing mm-hmm. this. And also by Michael's art, I have a Callahan hanging at the head of my bed. Oh, I love, it. I love that. Mm. Thank you. And I want to, and I want to let everybody know that, um, part of my mission going clear back to doing the comedy shows is to give another place for our local scene to find quality stage time. Mm-hmm. So when anybody, uh, any of you guys wants to get some stage time in front of a sold out room on a weekend that I've got something going, reach out to me because, um, that's what, I mean, that's what it's for too. Uh, you guys have been very generous with your stage and me, and I, I want to extend the, the offer. In fact, I'm stealing Bacula this weekend. Ah, that's what I was guessing that who the local favorite was. Yeah, so Bacula's going to do some time for Ooh. me, and I'm going to do some time for me, and then I'm going to do a little <laughs> bit more time for me. Oh, um, how generous of you. <laughs> <laughs> and then Maggie Ferris is going to make sure it was worth the money. <laughs> yeah, I would be there, but I'll be out of town. But, no worries. Uh, it sounds awesome. Yeah, go check Michael out. We can probably get some links somewhere to go check him out. MJCallahan.com. Find me on Facebook, whatever. Wonderful. Thanks for joining us. Ah, Thanks for having me. You guys are the best. Bye-bye.